Nice to be with you uh, this evening. Um, it's been a long time since I was here last, so it's nice to be back. Um, tonight, I thought we'd just look at this uh, psalm uh, together. And we're going to try and look at it in its entirety. So we're going to touch on some of the themes and some of the that come out of this psalm. And um, as I was uh, reflecting on the psalm, um, what really struck me was... Uh, teaching here, the focus was on keep looking to God in times of trouble. Keep looking to God in times of trouble. That's really what I want to emphasize tonight. And I'm going to take the next 20 minutes to try and uh, make you aware of that too. So, a wee while ago, believe it or not, I was looking at the Business Insider website. I know, I must have been skint at the time. Uh, one of the articles that uh, drew my attention was entitled this, The Most Overlooked Secret to Dealing with Life's Problems. And you can imagine, a title like that, you're instantly hooked, and I really wanted, and I must read this article. So I skimmed and scanned, as my English teachers had taught me, and wasn't getting much. And then before I knew it, I had got to the answer as to how we should overcome life's most difficult problems. And I quote this. The secret to dealing with life's problems is to realize that they are illusions of our imagination. Sure, they feel very real. I'm not denying that. And at that juncture, the author ends the article. And that's it. Game over. So, what the author is claiming at that point is that all our troubles are simply an illusion. They're not real people. We can rejoice, can't we? Because they are just something that we've conjured up in our mind. Okay, yeah, so I know you don't believe that. Yeah, I totally know you don't believe that. I don't believe that because life doesn't allow us to believe that kind of statement. But sometimes I wonder that maybe we adopt that kind of attitude to life's problems ourselves. Maybe we don't express it in those kind of words, but maybe we act in a way which would maybe cause us to imagine, well, maybe that's actually how I act. I'm sure you've all had a terrible week at some point in your working life. I have. Um, I'm on holiday, so it's not terrible at the moment. But at the end of the terrible week... How many of us kind of think, oh, it's been so bad this week. Let's go out shopping. Let's treat ourselves. Let's mask up all the rubbish that's happened to us. And let's get some retail therapy into us. Or maybe there's someone that's, after a really rough week, let's have a wee glass of wine. And then before you know it, five or six glasses later, you think, oh, jinks. Or maybe if you're the really good kind of Christian person. What the really good Christian person does potentially, is they busy themselves with doing good things, just to not be thinking about what the terrible things that have been happening. So they just busy themselves, and they don't really deal with the trouble. And the wonderful thing about this passage is, and I love the reality of the Bible in this one, it says that pretending trouble doesn't exist is just a bad idea. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. It's just storing up trouble for ourselves in the long run. But the Bible encourages us 
to face up to our trouble, doesn't it? Not to run away from it, not to mask it. And what the Bible encourages us to do is to take our trouble to God. And as we do that as Christians, as we take our trouble to God, what is going to happen is a process will kick in and the process will help us to deal with our troubles, to bring about a peaceful settlement and a strengthened faith as we go to God with our trouble. As we start, let's have a look at the background to the psalm. Psalm 42. Let's have a little think about what Psalm 42 is. Well, first of all, we have here is a lament. It's a psalm that is a lament. What we have is a sad song. But it's not a sad song devoid of hope. Rather, it's an expression of despair But within the despair, there is hope. There is a light in the darkness. It may just be a little flicker, but there's light there. The psalmist is despairing, and let's not diminish the trouble he was facing. But in his desperate times, he saw a flicker of hope, and that flicker of hope was on God. And so we see it's a lament. We see that it's divided into two uh, sections. And the end of each section uh, is in verse 5, where we have the refrain, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This marks the end of part 1. Then verse 11, the exact same phrase repeated to mark the end of section 2. So we've got a lament. We've got it in two specific sections. Now, the author of this psalm, well, we don't know his name. But what we do know is that he was a son of Korah. And you're thinking, well, who's Korah and who's a son? Well, the sons of Korah were central to the worship of God in the time of the Old Testament. The sons of Korah were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. They were the singers in the temple. Second Chronicles 20 verse 19 tells us this about the sons of Korah. The Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And as we examine this passage, this psalm, what we're seeing here is someone who is a Christian, someone who has put their faith in God, going through a really hard time, but putting their faith in God. And so that uh, that puts to bed the idea that Christians don't suffer problems because we've got this temple singer, this key participant in the temple life. He's really struggling and he is turning to God for hope. And so tonight what I thought we'd do was we'd look at this psalm in three different parts. So verses 1 to 4, what we have there is remembering the good times, remembering the good times. Then verses 5 and 11, that little repeated verse, we're going to take that, those two little verses together, preach to yourself, 5 and 11. And then finally verses 6 to 10, 
resting on God's steadfast love. Resting on God's steadfast love. So that's how we're going to look at it. So, remember the good times, verses 1 to 4. Um, a number of months ago, and I'm a bit of a sucker for a bit of Scandi Noir, there was this new BBC4 uh, drama on called Trapped. I don't know if you watched it, brilliant uh, drama. Set in Iceland, it's this set in a remote rural village in Iceland. A snowstorm has come, there is no way of escaping, and they're trapped. But more than that, not only is there loads of snow around, not only can they knock out, but there's a murderer on the prowl. And so they're trapped in fear, not only for the elements, but for this kind of uh, man or woman who's going around doing bad things. But as you look at the different characters, what you're also seeing, especially in the lead character, is that he's also feeling cut off amongst his relations. He sees his ex-wife and his family, and there's this feeling of cut-offness, and there's this kind of over... I suppose there's this sense of him wanting to be reunited. And what I think we have in here is that similar idea of some cut off who's desperately wanting to be reunited with his first love. The psalmist is feeling trapped in a situation that he wants released from. He wants to be free from this spiritual depression that has come over him. He is feeling alone, secluded, excluded, rejected, cut off, stranded and abandoned, and he desperately wants to return to his first love. He wants reunification with God. Look at how this man is describing his life in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? Life is just one big cry. He is singing the blues. The tears that he sheds are his food day and night, night and day. They just keep coming. In his spiritual despair and depression, he also has to experience the mocking insults of others, of his enemies, when they're calling out to him, where is your God? In his spiritually depressed state and surrounded by the taunts of his enemies, he wants God first and foremost. He craves after his creator. He desires to be reunited with God. The imagery he uses to illustrate his desire is found in verse 1. He is like a deer panting after water. The deer desperately needs to be refreshed with water. It needs to find living water. And so he likens his craving for God like that of a parched animal hunting the landscape for water. He desperately wants to make an appointment with God. It's clear from verse 2 that this is his heart's desire. He needs to be in the presence of God once more. But it looks like it's not going to happen anytime soon. When shall I come and appear before God? When? 
during the time of this psalm, to be near God, to appear before God, was to be stood in Jerusalem at the temple. It was the great meeting place between God and his people. The temple was the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement for sin. God had designed the public of worship of himself as a means to grow the faith of those who participated, to strengthen their faith through the corporate worship of their glorious God. This was a very real event. This is where God worked in a supernatural way to bring the worshippers blessing. In his trouble, the psalmist remembers the high points of his spiritual walk with God. He casts his mind back to those moments where he felt most spiritually alive. His mind wanders back to Jerusalem, to the sights and sounds of the community of God proclaiming the glory of God. If nothing unique was happening in Jerusalem at these times, what we have here is pure sentimentalism. In verse 4. The psalmist is not, however, engaging in nostalgia. This is not some nice, fuzzy-wuzzy feelings about a past time. This was real. This practice of going to worship brought real benefits into his life. This practice of remembering all the good times with God's people worshiping God was affirming his faith. In the midst of his trouble and discouragement, he remembers back to those times where God was very real to him in corporate worship. For us, location is no longer an issue. Being in Jerusalem at the temple is no longer necessary. The reason why we can worship in London today is that Jesus himself, through his death on the cross, becomes the great meeting place with God. The meeting place with God is no longer a cold temple in Jerusalem, but in the person of Jesus. If you want to meet with God, you go through Jesus. Not only do we have this wonderful truth that we meet God in Jesus, but we are assured from the Bible that Jesus is here meeting with us right now. Because remember in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, that's where I am. Jesus is here now. And what we are doing now is the worship of God. But also through this act of worship, our strength, our faith is being strengthened, isn't it? This is a unique God event in the life of us as believers in God. That's why public worship must be your most important thing in your diary. 
The most important thing in your diary is not the meeting tomorrow morning at 9am to secure this multi-million pound deal. It's here, now. This is not simply an AGM, is it? This is not some ritual that we perform every week, but this is a real encounter with the living God. This is doing our soul good. This event is strengthening your soul. This event is preparing you for a continual life of worship towards God. Do we ever think about public worship like this? Do we believe that something extraordinary is happening right now? Or have we relegated the importance of meeting together with the family of God? Do we view it more as a hassle? rather than a help? Is it a flexible item in our diary or is it a non-negotiable? In the psalmist's time of spiritual struggle, he remembered the good times with God's people. He remembers the times where he met with God and he remembers that through his meeting with the family of God, worshiping God, that he was being strengthened spiritually and that all those reserves of spiritual strength were going to help him through this current struggle. So remember the good times. Remember the times with God's people when we first go through trouble. Then verses 5 and 11, that lovely little refrain that we have in verses 5 and 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Have you ever had to G yourself up to get yourself really going? Well, come on, you can do this, you can do this. I'm sure you've all done. Andy Murray does it all the time. Come on, I can do this. And you're seeing him like punching and thinking. You know, sometimes we have to G ourselves up. We're thinking something's really hard and we think, oh yeah, I can do this. We're amazing. Let's do this, team. And so what we have in these verses it's the kind of Sam is trying to G himself up, but he's not Ging himself up saying, oh, you're amazing, son of Korah, you're like the best singer in all of Jerusalem. No, he is basically preaching to himself God's word. He's giving himself a little pep talk. This psalmist is giving himself a good talking to, isn't he? He begins to preach to himself, and what's the little sermon he's preaching to himself in the time of trouble is this. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He does this. He preaches to himself because one of the great dangers of going through times of trouble is self-pity, isn't it? One of the dangers is that we turn in on ourselves. And we start moaning and groaning about how awful things are. The poor me's. And we're prone to forget all that God has done for us. We are prone to forget all that God is doing and all that God will do for us. According to the example of the damnest here, one exit strategy from your pity party is to remember God. To give yourself a good talking to, and the content of this talk 
is not about how wonderful we are, how we're going to fix this ourselves. What is central to the psalmist's pep talk is God. The psalmist used his knowledge of God and reminds himself that God is his salvation. God had saved him. And because God had saved him, he can trust God. The psalmist is reassured from all that he has learned about God that he will once more be gathered with the people of God to praise his glorious name. When you and I are feeling spiritually down, cut off, when we are facing troubles, let's not wallow in self-pity. Let's remember who our God is. Let's focus on who we worship, on who has saved us. Remind yourselves about the great truths about God. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones famously wrote on the topic of spiritual depression, and he puts it uh, like this. You wake up thinking about stuff, and often it might be all the stuff that was worrying you from yesterday or from the past. Who is talking to you at the moment? Yourself is talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment is this. To stop yourself talking to you, to stop that inner voice speaking to you, speaking back to you, what you have to do is to actively speak to yourself, to preach to yourself. It's quite confusing. Speak to yourself. Don't let yourself and your minds and your thinking speak to you first, but actively speak into your situation. Don't let yourself speak to you. This won't necessarily solve the problem straight away. It doesn't for the psalmist. Remember, he has to do this two times in the psalm. But it is a starting process to lift our eyes up towards God in times of of difficulties. So what the psalmist is urging us to do, when we are facing difficulties, remind yourself about God, about God's love, and be active in doing that. So first of all, remember how God has blessed you in the past. Actively preach to yourself the truths about who God is. And then finally, verses 6 to 10, we rest on God's steadfast love. We rest in God's steadfast love. The psalmist describes what his trouble feels like, and he keeps the water theme going, doesn't he? This time, the water is not refreshing. But in verse 7, we see that the water is something to be feared. It is dangerous. He is fighting for air as he is buffeted by the waves as the waterfall crashes down upon him. A vivid portrait of violence and struggle to survive is being painted for us in verse 7. 
But as we know, the purpose of the Psalms are not to point to the psalmist, but to point to the God of the psalmist. The psalmist's troubles point to the unspeakably greater troubles that Jesus endured and to the troubles of soul that he knew. When our soul is troubled, when we are anxious, one of the great encouragements for us is that God understands. He knows what it's like to be troubled. He has gone through even deeper troubles than the psalmist or we could fathom. Jesus speaks in John as he enters Jerusalem. As he is about to be put to death, Jesus says this, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus Christ experiences trouble. The Son of God experiences trouble. He faces anxiety. And that is amazing comfort to us, isn't it? When we are facing trouble. Why did he lo- why did Jesus allow himself to be troubled? Why did he allow himself to be anxious? Well, he allowed himself to be troubled so that we may have a lasting peace. So that we would not need be troubled. John 14 verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus' troubles, you see, are focused on his people. His concerns are for his people's trouble to be alleviated, for their anxiety to be, to, to be removed. That is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus allowed himself, himself to be troubled so that our hearts may not be troubled. But by verse 8, the tone changes as the psalmist reminds himself of God, the waves become still, don't they? The sea becomes flat calm as the psalmist reminds himself that by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. Certainty. Assurance that God loved him was what gave him such a rock-solid faith in God. It was this reality that enabled him to experience comfort in the midst of his troubles. The psalmist trusts God. The psalmist feels secure in his relationship with God. He knows that God doesn't fail, that God's love for him overcomes even the fiercest of troubles. He knows that God is good and that though he may not understand why the trouble was allowed to occur, he knows that God is there. You and I can enjoy rest 
because of God's committed love towards us. It was that commitment to love us that enabled him to give of his own son to become the great meeting place for humans and God and to deal definitively with our anxieties and fears. But yet, it's so real, the Bible. You've got a wonderful flat cam, but yet, what do we have? The trouble continues as we look on. My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? The doubt reappears. It comes back. It's not as if everything's sorted. It's sorted for a time, but it comes back. So very real, isn't it? We get that calm, then we think again, and then it goes. But yet he clings to these truths. And in verse 11, he needs to preach another little sermon to himself to remind himself about God and his love. We too are going to be challenged by doubts. We are going to struggle, but we must ensure that we firmly put our trust in the God who steadfastly loves us and who will guide us through each and every storm. Through all his trials, his absence from public worship, the taunts of his unbelieving, uh, of the unbelievers in verses 3 and 10, the overwhelming experiences that he feels in verse 7, God's delay in answering his uh, prayer in verse 9. He trusts. And as God's children, we too experience trials just like God's child in this psalm. But we must place our trust in the God who is our rock during each and every difficult trial. Let's bring this together. Quickly recap all that we have in this psalm. First of all, in verse 4, the psalmist is anchoring his trust in the God that he worshipped with his fellow believer and how his God had provided him spiritual strength, which he was drawing upon in these times of trouble. Verse 5, he's anchoring himself in the fact that God has saved him. That God has saved him, and because of this, he has hope. And final anchor in his time of trouble is in verse 8. He anchors his trust in the steadfast love of God, that rock-solid love that gives him peace and allows him to continue to trust even when troubles were buffeting him. Do as the psalmist did. Remember God during the trouble. Call out to your God during the trouble and enjoy the reassuring truth that God will walk through, will walk with you through each and every trouble. Looking forward with great joy when we finally attain that untroubled life with our Father in heaven. Amen.